We'll hear argument next this morning in case 08810, Conkright versus Fromert. Mr. Long. And may it please the Court. In this ERISA case, the Court of Appeals applied a deferential standard of review to the District Court's interpretation of the Xerox plan, but not to the plan administrator's interpretation. We think the Court of Appeals got it backwards. Under either a deferential standard of review or a de novo standard, the plan administrator's interpretation should prevail. That interpretation, unlike the District Court's interpretation, is grounded in the language of the plan. It recognizes the fundamental actuarial principle of the time value of money, and it avoids conferring windfalls. In Firestone and Glenn, this Court looked to the language of the plan, which reflects the intent of the plan sponsor. Right. But but when the administrator has interpreted the plan incorrectly and the Court finds, the Court of Appeals finds that he's interpreted incorrectly, it doesn't have to send it back and say, you know, give me another bid. Try something else. It says you did it incorrectly, and we find that what you should have done is this. Isn't that what normally happens? Well, we think under trust law, which the Court has looked to in Glenn and Firestone, where the plan, uh, the settlor of the trust, has assigned the uh, responsibility for making the discretionary determinations to the plan administrator or to the trustee, unless there's been a showing of bad faith or some other reason to think that the discretion will not be exercised honestly and fairly, it, it is really up to the plan administrator to make that discretionary determination. So all a court can do in those trust cases is to say, you got it wrong, Sam, go back and do it again, right? Well, we, and he gets it wrong again, and he goes back to court. The court said, Sam, it's still wrong. Go back and do it again. Well, we, I can't we, believe that that's what the law is. We, we think these situations of the, of the multiple bites at the apple will be rare. Trust law has had this rule for decades, and that has not been a problem. The SG says that isn't trust law. The SG says that trust law, when you make a mistake and you send it back, that the uh, district judge has a choice here, which would make sense. The district judge, if he thinks he's going to get something out of the trust, uh, the administrator listens to him. I mean, it sounds like common sense would be listen to the administrator, but you don't have to do it. Well, I, because it's very complicated, he may understand it. I'd, I'd have a two-part answer, uh, Justice. Is she wrong? You're saying if I look well, up those cases, I think I'll find it'd, out be, it'd be quite unusual to say the standard of review is up to the court that it can be either. It's not exactly. It's not a standard review. It's he's trying to figure out what the word duplicative means. Okay, and the the, the administrator did his best. Says it means what it meant before, which is like 14 pages of who could understand it. Okay. And then it turns well, out that that isn't what it well, means in the district judges. That's affirmed. So now he says, give me another shot. I, if it were me, I'd listen. But, but if I thought that this isn't really that great, I, I would try to figure out something else. And then if I were a court of appeals judge, I'd say it's up to the district court. But now, luckily, the SG says that is the law. <laughs> well, but Professor Scott, who was the reporter for both the second and the first yes. restatement, and whose treatise correlates with it the, the section numbers correlate exactly with the sections of the restatement for which he was reporter. If you look in section 187 of his 
uh, treatise, which correlates with Section 187 of the Restatement Second, the principle is that unless there's been bad faith or some other reason to expect that the trustee will not exercise the discretion fairly and honestly, and there are examples, illustrations 11 and 12, if, if the amount is unreasonably low. Now, what about just that? He came back, the administrator, I think, the second time with something that very closely resembled the first time. Well, I, th- I think. And what about that for a I reason think thinking he's I not think in that? It's quite good different with, with respect, Justice Breyer. The, the reconstructed account methodology really looked to the performance of a hypothetical account, but the what we call the plan administrator's interpretation, mm-hmm. the interpretation that came up for the first time after mm-hmm. the Second Circuit, overruling the district court, said, you know, this plan provision that clearly tells you how to do it is actually invalid. Well, if there's it wasn't no bad, properly disclosed. If there's no bad faith, then how many shots does the plan administrator, who I, I don't think is named Sam, gets to, uh, <laughs> to try to answer this question? Well, I, we think the standard is that if, as long as there is discretion to be exercised within the limits that would be set by the Court's opinion, absent a showing of bad faith or other reason to think the discretion won't be exercised honestly and fairly, it ought to be left to the plan administrator because that's what the plan provides. Now, Mr. I think in re- we're talking in, in the abstract, yes. referring to Scott, but th- this case, what I took away from the Second Circuit's opinion was the flaw here was not that the method was no good if you had adequate notice. The flaw was the people affected were not told in what is the language of ERISA in plain, simple language, what their entitlement was. Um, and that, that's, that's the problem, not that this method wasn't perfectly satisfactory if you gave everybody notice, but the Second Circuit said you didn't give them notice. Either it said nothing or it was totally ambiguous. Yes, and that, that's right at the heart of the case. And you're quite correct. The Second Circuit did say there was not adequate notice of the reconstructed account methodology but it's an important part of our submission that the plan administrator's interpretation on remand is significantly different. This is the way these offsets are typically done. There's nothing hypothetical about it. You take the lump sum that was actually paid uh, to these plan participants. You look to the annuity that could have been purchased with that lump sum using the annuity rates that are put out by the federal government, by the PBGC. This is uh, the typical way this offset is performed. Uh, this is, falls within the safe harbor. Uh, the chief actuaries have filed an amicus brief saying this is quite typical. So this — if, if there were information, but the, the ERISA provision says um, that you're supposed to give the summary uh, description of the plan in a manner calculated to be understood by the average plan participant. Yes, yes. And all that the 1989 statement said was the amount the employees receive may be reduced if they previously left the company and received a distribution at that time. Yes. 
And, and the Second Circuit did not decide this question of whether the notice of the plan administrator's interpretation was sufficient. And, but we think there are very strong arguments that it, that it was. I mean, first of all, it did describe the circumstances in which there could be an offset, which is what the statute and the regulation requires. And second, it, it is uh, the law in the Second Circuit as elsewhere that in a summary plan description, which is just that, a summary, you need not describe in detail every offset and every actuarial adjustment. There are many such adjustments in ERISA plans. They frequently apply to relatively small numbers of participants. If it were a requirement of the statute that each of these be described in detail in the summary plan description, you would risk defeating the purpose of the summary plan description and invalidating many ERISA plans across the country. So we would urge the Court strongly not to accept this argument that, oh, well, uh, you know, if the, if the notice of the reconstructed account methodology is inadequate, then it must also be the case that the notice of this different I would say plain vanilla kind of offset, typical offset, must also be inadequate. We don't think that is true. Well, why, why uh, this is important to me, whether the plan administrator was interpreting the same language when this case was remanded back down. Originally, he was simply applying the methodology that had been specified in 1990, right? Yes. And the court said that was no good because you didn't give these people notice of it. But that, he had been applying that test not since 1990, but since 1980. In other words, he had taken that to be a reasonable interpretation of the very summary language in, in the plan itself, right? That is absolutely correct. And at the time, the so when it went back, why didn't he stick with that and say, yeah, they didn't have adequate notice of that, but that is still a reasonable interpretation of the original plan, even before we specified that. When it went back on remand from the Second Circuit the first time, the plan administrator adopted a, a new interpretation yeah. that is what I'm calling the plain vanilla. I understand that. Why did he do that? Inasmuch as the first interpretation was not adopted in 1990, but it was adopted under the same language that he is now interpreting in 1980. Right? He was applying it between 1980 and 1990. That's what he thought he, that's what he thought the plan meant in all those years. Well, and there was a provision in the plan that specifically told him to do the offset in this way in the second After circuit. 1990. Well, no, it was also in the plan before 1990. It, oh, I did Yes, it, a lot of this case started because it got dropped out of the 1989 restatement by accident for a period of three months, and all of these dire consequences are really flowing from well, your, your brief says the plan administrator has consistently applied the reconstructed account methodology since the early 80s. Yes, that's correct. Effective April 90, 1990, the plan language requiring this methodology provided as follows. So but, I took that to mean there was no such language before that. There, there was there, there plan was. language requiring yes. it before 1990. Yes, and that's another important point in this complicated case. I mean, the, the only period in which this, what we call the reconstructed account methodology, that gave specific instructions about how to do it. So we say it was not at all unreasonable for the plan administrator to follow those specific instructions. It dropped out in this 1989 restatement 
for a very short period and then got put back in, and that's the Second Circuit said, well, then you get into problems with anti-cutback and different types of things. But where is the, what, what was in the summary plan description on this point between 1980 and 1990? Where is that? Uh, there were a variety of summary plan descriptions, obviously, and I think in general, Justice Ginsburg, they simply had the statement that your benefit may be reduced if you have received a prior distribution. Right. So there was no description of this in the summary plan description. That's, that is correct during that period, although, again. It, but what period? Between 1980 and 1990 or the three months? I think it was really in about 1995. The descriptions got gradually more detailed as we go into the 1990s, but through the 80s and up into the, I think until about 1995 or so, there would have been simply a statement that uh, your benefit may be reduced. Okay, that, that's what I thought, and I thought you said no when I asked that question, that this detailed description of the RAM didn't oh, come well, in until 19. I'm sorry if I misunderstood you, Justice Scalia. I was talking about the language of the plan, and we are, after all, talk, talking about benefits due under the terms of the plan. And the plan did include this specific reconstructed account methodology, except for the three-month period. Now, the wait, summary wait. plan description had a, oh, had a, much, had. a much briefer, but, gotcha. I mean, a, 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 an additional point on this, Justice Scalia, is, I mean, this is a claim for benefits due under the terms of the plan. And, you know, there's, there's actually a circuit split on this, but if the claim is something like, well, the summary plan description wasn't good enough. It didn't contradict the plan, and it told me the circumstances in which the benefits might be reduced, but it didn't tell me how, and that's just not good enough. It, often you have to make some sort of showing of uh, re reliance and but prejudice. But so it's, it's really arguing the, I thought that the — that you had surrendered on, what is it called, Fromert 1, that the, the Second Circuit said what you had was no good because it <coughs> violated the notice provision and then violated the anti-cutback provision. So that, uh, what they call phantom uh, right. account, they, they call is it out. Phantom accounting. Is, right. Is out. But you seem now to be telling us that was really a wrong decision on the Second Circuit's part, that, there was, that it was perfectly good that it was described in the plan itself, although not in the summary plan description. Well, well no, and I, I, I mean, what happened is for the plaintiffs in this case, they were hired after the rehired, after the 1989 restatement went into effect. And so that's when this, when this provision that specifically described the reconstructed account methodology was dropped out. And that's when all the trouble started. The only reason I was mentioning the reconstructed account methodology was trying to address Justice Scalia's question, although I may have confused it further, to say that the plan, the terms of the plan, did include the specific provision. So it was not crazy for the plan administrator to be following that. Now, it was struck down by the Second Circuit, invalidated, and the plan administrator is not uh, seeking to challenge that on remand. Obviously, they can't. So you claim, a, you claim that what he is interpreting when it comes back to him is not 
the same text that Absolutely. they invalidated. It's the remaining. But rather, it's the plan without this text. Absolutely. It's the remaining plan terms. There is a new interpretive question here, which is how do we make sense of the remaining plan terms now that the Second Circuit, unlike the plan administrator, unlike the district court, has held that this provision that specifically addresses this is invalid and can't be used. And that is really a new interpretive question that came up in litigation. It's, it's, it struck me, if I, it's hard. I don't necessarily have followed it all. But the, you had this original plan where basically you're trying to figure out how much money they took away, and you compared it with what it would have made if you'd invested it in certain funds. So now we have a new word which is called duplicative. You can't be duplicative, something like that. And then the Second Circuit says that new word called duplicative for new plans doesn't really pick up this old phantom system. At least it doesn't give notice. Now he sends it back. And the poor district judge, since he thought that was perfectly sensible to say it did pick that up, says, well, they told me it didn't. So I'll ask the administrator, what do you think we do now? The administrator says, I have a great idea, the the, the plain vanilla system. The plain vanilla system happens to be very much like the old system, except in following your own funds, you're not doing it. You're following the, in, the insurance industry's funds. So, well, I mean, that's, that's what they'll pay for an annuity. And that's called, that's called their funds. That's called what they think they'll earn. Well, I mean, just a couple of right. points in response, Justice. Right? I mean, first of all, it's not just the word duplication or non-duplication. Section 9.6, which is on page 32A of the yeah. Joint Appendix, uh, says uh, that if there's been a prior distribution, the accrued benefit based on all the years of participation right. shall be offset by the accrued benefit yeah. attributable to such distribution. Correct. And the question is, what is attributable to? And they struck down your phantom system for doing right. it. And then the administrator comes back with a new system. Which new system is going to take the judgment of the insurance companies about what was accrued? Well, no, no Your Honor. The judgment of the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. All right. Fine. And then what he's thinking is that's awfully similar. We just substituted different people well, here. But, but, I mean, it's similar in a sense that I think it's Similar in a sense and it's different plan. in a sense. I mean, if I could, yeah. this is a floor offset plan. And the basic concept of the floor offset plan yeah. is to give a kind of an insurance policy that if the defined contribution plan performs poorly, the defined benefit component of the plan will guarantee that you get a certain minimum benefit. And so... The way the thing works, if the defined contribution balance is above the defined benefit, then your defined contribution is your benefit. And that's good. That means you've exceeded the floor. And what happened here is we're ca- the ho- this whole thing, we're calculating the defined benefit, the floor. That's what we're doing. And we're trying to figure out what sort of offset do you take into account because these people got lump sums, in some cases quite Quite large. Mr. Frommert got almost $145,000 10 or 20 years ago. So if the notion is, if if Mr. Frommert had continued working for Xerox throughout his career, this money would have continued to grow. It would have increased his defined contribution benefit, and he would have not yeah, the, the, the more you hypothetically grow it, the less chance they'll get the floor. But, and, and the and key so they'd point, like to get the floor, and well, so they'd like it but, to be — is that right? But the key point — yes, but the key point is 
he had the use of this money for all these years. And, and it is a fundamental principle of pensions, of ERISA, that there is a time value of money. And if you accept this uh, interpretation that the district court adopted and then the Court of Appeals said, well, we'll just give it deferential review. We won't even give it de novo review. It's it's, you know, one reasonable interpretation among many. Are you saying it's a — and these categories don't often help us. Is this a question of law, a mixed question of law, in fact? Well, I, I think in terms of whether this is a reasonable interpretation of the terms of the plan, it is a question of law. And I think it is unreasonable. I mean, certainly looking at the plan language, there is plan language that does — Speak to this, and then also, I mean, this. Court of Appeals said it's just an application of equitable principles, well, not an but, interpretation of. The plan. But it's it's a claim for benefits due under the terms of the yeah, plan. Yeah. There, you know, we, I read you the language. Accrued benefit is a defined and, and, term. And in that's the, the plan. statutory term. Benefits due under the terms of the plan is a statutory. Yes. Term. Yes. So that that's what we're talking about. The Solicitor General agrees with us that if you're talking about the terms of the plan, even if you're trying to fashion a remedy for a violation of ERISA, that is still a de novo review question, and there would be terrible problems with uniformity of plan interpretation if you said, oh, well, you know, it's just uh, a discretionary kind of review. Let's let every district court interpret this plan in its own fashion. But, but the notion of having, you know, essentially — what the uh, district court's interpretation does is to say we're going to have a zero interest rate, uh, which is, I mean, the chief actuary's brief says they've never in their entire careers, none of them have ever seen an ERISA plan. That until this time? Well, until the district court said it was a reasonable interpretation of this plan. And if this fact, was not a, a discretionary decision for the district court, let's assume that it's not a discretionary decision for the art for the administrator but if it's and if it's also not a discretionary decision for the district court if what the district court is required to do is to say what the plan means what would you suggest that the district court should have looked to when the the, the provision the, this the the plan language that the district court has to look at is very bare bones well, but you absolutely you start with the language, and we don't think it is quite that bare bones. The section 9.6, which says the offset is the accrued benefit attributable to the prior distribution, and then section 1.1, which is the definition of accrued benefit, and that basically says it is the normal retirement benefit payable at normal retirement date at age 65 in an amount computed in accordance with section 4.3. And then 4.3 says the monthly benefit, which could be purchased with the member's transitional retirement account, that's the defined contribution account, as calculated using, using annuity rates established by the PBGC. So it's not quite that bare bones. But then we would also say you would look to this notion that the time value of money is an absolutely central concept to pensions, and the notion of People would have use of money for 10 years or 20 years at a zero interest rate. And, indeed, it's, it's even worse than that because, I mean, ultimately this has to be expressed in the form of an annuity. Well, respondents say that uh, this was a — sure, it's, it's a, a benefit to them to be — to have this offset only by the amount that they received and not take into account the time-valued money. But this was an incentive that lured them into uh, — 
accepting employment well, again well, with Xerox. With, now, res uh, with respect, Justice Alito, that is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, no employer would do that to their uh, current employees. That would treat the current employees like suckers. And it certainly didn't happen here. There's no evidence that that happened. I don't know of any case in which that has ever happened. I mean, you how does it how does it hurt the current employees? You well, say they, they don't get. You this. said to the current employees. I mean, basically, um, Mr. Frommer, to take him as an example, he's. I mean, if if someone who's otherwise similarly situated to him had just kept working for Xerox. They would not have needed the insurance policy either. Their defined contribution account would have been above the floor, and so they would get their defined contribution account. Mr. Frommert had the use of all this money for all these years. We don't know what he invested it in, but presumably it grew in the investments. But under the so district court's kind of interpretation, equal protection that, that another worker will say. I, I didn't get that boon that mine. Exactly. They say I've been working. But there's no no. Um, nothing, no deduction from the current workforce. They're getting what the plan said all along is the right calculation. Yes, and, and that's what the plan administrator's interpretation is trying to achieve as closely as possible for the rehires. It's trying to treat them the same. If, if there are no further questions, I'd like I to reserve one little, I, I thought you said uh, what this affects is just the floor. It doesn't affect the level of the, defi of the defined contribution? Absolutely, Justice Scalia. The defined contribution, now in this case, for Mr. Frommert, for example, was this large lump sum that he got. I mean, another fact I'll mention is that Xerox stopped making additional contributions to this uh, defined contribution account in uh, 1990, just when Mr. Frommert returned. That's, wh that's where this $5 thing comes from. His benefit, his defined contribution benefit, was that large lump sum, given many years before normal retirement date. I'd like to reserve the balance. Thank you, Mr. Long. That's why I don't understand why I <laughs> Mr. Sris. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Um, after hearing Mr. Long, I'd like to address my remarks to two broad areas. First, I'd like to talk about why the lower courts in this case were not required to defer the legal principle. And then, in light of some of the factual claims he's made, which are belied by the record and directly contradict the findings of the lower court in this case, I'd like to explain why they didn't defer. Because sitting here, the irony to me is the core focus of his position is that courts have episodic um, involvement with these very complicated plans, and yet, as I'll get to in my second point, most of his position is predicated on things that are directly contrary to the court in this case that was on the ground that looked at these issues. He wants this court, which has even less of a uh, typical and constant involvement with the plan, to second-guess the lower court. But but even, if the, even if no deference was owed to the administrator, could you explain why the task for the district court was not then simply to interpret what the plan means. What puzzles me about what, something that puzzles me about the, the two decisions by the Second Circuit are 
A, why this is remedial, why isn't it just an interpretation of the plan? B, where do equi- what do equitable principles have to do with this? And why should it be a discretionary decision for the district court? What does the plan mean? That would be the issue. That, isn't that the question, if there's no admi- uh, deference due to the administrator? Yes. To me, that's the most difficult question in this case. I'm, I'm glad we're going straight to it, but then I'm going to go back to deference just to make sure we don't lose on that point where I think we're, we're squarely right. Now to your question. Here's what happened. Xerox made two arguments in the first round of litigation. This is very important. Their first argument was that a later plan applied retroactively. They didn't want to apply the 89 plan. Their second argument, and this is here the best places where you could find it, page 42A of the petition appendix, that's the Second Circuit, page uh, 75A and 85A of the petition appendix, this is where the district court said it. Their second argument was that section 9.6 of the 1989 plan permitted an appreciated offset, something more than just a nominal offset. This was rejected as arbitrary and capricious. Now, the phantom account was rejected, but so was the broad principle that there could be an appreciated offset. Now, here's the answer to your question, uh, Justice Alito. It would have been totally appropriate at that point in time for the Second Circuit to say there's going to be a nominal offset. We would have been done. We wouldn't be here anymore. But Xerox essentially made a fairness argument. They said, well, this is a Scrivener's error. We only left this out for three months, which isn't true, by the way. They left it out for five years. But the Court said, well, if that's true and if this is going to be a windfall, maybe Xerox has an equitable defense. This is an A1B claim for ter- under the terms of the plan, but they remanded this to the lower court out of consideration for Xerox so that the lower court could look at equitable principles and say, well, since the plan doesn't foreclose an appreciation, maybe under equity we should have some appreciation. And then what happened, and this is the irony, is Xerox went back, and this is right out of page 143A of the Joint Appendix. They proposed uh, an offset that effectively is an undisclosed $16 million appreciation. Here's why this is important. Their phantom account in the first round, it was an undisclosed $17 million appreciation. They didn't come in and say — they made equitable arguments. If you look at their briefs, they said, we're, we're not saying that this is what the plan means, but the plan's been invalidated. We're going to make equitable arguments of things that might be consistent with the plan. Counsel, if I could switch to the <coughs> deference point. Let's say you have an administrator who says, I interpret this particular provision to mean A. And he says, but if that's rejected, there are these other provisions that should be read to mean B. That goes up, the court, the court rejects A. Does the administrator get deference on his reading of the other provisions B? The position I, I would take, I think if they did them at the same time, it's a difficult question. I think they would. Because I think if you give them at the same time and you admit that there's an ambiguity, you're giving the court options. You're saying, defer to my judgment. I think this is right, but here's the alternative. What Xerox did here, and this is very important, they made the strategic choice in round one of this litigation to say, we think there's one option it's terrible for, for petitioners. Well, but I think it's kind of odd to say to the administrator, look, if you want discretion, you should make as many rulings as you can possibly think of, because then you'll get discretion as to each of them. But if you only do what's efficient and say, here's how I read it, then you don't get any discretion at all on the other provisions. No, I, I, I don't — well, I guess I would give two answers to that. The first is, in the first instance, if you seriatim said, here are 12 different interpretations of the plan in ranked order, I don't think you would get deference. I think for efficiency's sake, like you say, we want administrators to say this is what we think the interpretation of the plan is. I agree with you. But in a rare case like this one, where Xerox's main point is we screwed up, we left out the, the provision, 
I think the appropriate thing for Xerox to do would have said, we think we can rely on it and take this interpretation, even though we left out the provision. But if, if not, then this is how we interpret the plan. I'm not saying you would, they would definitely get deference, but at least there'd be an argument that there's a presumption of competence, that there's efficiency. Here, the standard trust law rule, which I'm going to get to in a second, says you stake your ground, Xerox. You said that this is what you thought the plan meant. We held that you were arbitrary and capricious. Not, not, a, not an honest, not a, not a small procedural mistake. You, you picked something that was unreasonable. And now you want a second bite at the apple. So you're saying it's not just that they abuse their discretion. They're discretion abusers. You can't trust them on the next provision. No. no I, yeah, I, and we do that with the district court. We get a district court and we use all these pejorative terms, abuse of discretion, arbitrary and capricious, clear error. We send it back for them to do the same. You know, they yeah. make, they're the yeah. fact finder. Here, the plan administrator is the in primary interpreter. And, and this is the core answer to your question. That is why the law un under the common law of trusts said that once there was a finding by a court of abuse of discretion, it could decide <coughs> to, to defer. I agree with Xerox. Ordinarily, the courts would defer. Under ERISA, ordinarily, if there's factual issues, they send it back. Here, the court said under these specific facts, under this abuse of discretion, for a host of reasons, not the least of which, Your Honor, is that they're trying to take a fallback position on the exact same issue, which the Court expressly found in this case, they exercised their discretion not to defer. The rule, in order for Xerox to get reversal on the first question, they have to convince this Court that what the rule should be is that not that not — we don't have to convince you that there should be — there shouldn't be deference in all of these cases. They have to convince you that a lower court never has the option, unless there's a finding of bad faith, to say, yeah, I'm not going to defer. And that's not the law. This very court in 1888 in the Colton case, which the government cites in their brief and we, and we cite, there, the trustee said, we're not giving a benefit. The court said, that's arbitrary and capricious. This court ordered the lower courts to set the benefit. They never made a finding of bad faith. Well, if this is a discretionary decision for the, the court that finds the initial abuse of discretion by the administrator, what are the factors what are the relevant factors in determining whether the administrator should get a second shot and, and which ones are present in this case? Okay. I'm, I'm going to tell you the factors that existed at trust law and at ERISA and that I think are right. One very important factor is, is it the exact same question? And here it was. It was the same question. I, I disagree with Mr. Long's characterization. They took a position as an alternative on the meaning of, of Section 9.6 under this plan. Now, they want to say, well, now we're going to rely on different provisions in addition to the one we did before. But, I mean, Justice Scalia, to your question earlier, that would be like saying, here's a contract. I think that we, I interpret this provision looking at pages one and two. You hold that I acted in an arbitrary fashion. And I say, okay, I want to interpret it again. I'm going to look at one and two, but this time I'm going to look at pages seven, eight, and nine. It's a new issue because I didn't consider those, those points before. It's still the same question. So that's one thing. It's not the same question. When, when the Court has held that one and two was, in effect, not in the contract because you didn't give enough notice of it. So now you have a contract without one and two in it. Oh, I, so it's I, a different question. What does this contract mean without one and two? Now, you, you may have a different point if, if you say that what and I, it seems to me you did say this, that the Court of Appeal, the Court of Appeals not only decided that there was no notice and therefore this provision wasn't any good, but you claim that the Court of Appeals also said that you cannot 
account for the time value of money. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't that, exactly that, say that. That would be I, a totally different yeah. case, what the court of but I didn't read it that way. No, what the Court of Appeals said, actually there's three things I'd like to respond to, and I, I want to get back to the factors. The Court of Appeals said that the SPDs did not disclose an appreciation. The, the Court of Appeals said that the relevant provision in this plan, the only one that would have applied time value of money, was missing. But I argue that the consequence of those things is that you can't have a time value of money. So I'm going to get to that in a second. That's a little different. Now, to the last point you made about it's a different issue. I think we're saying the same thing. This is semantic. Yeah, Xerox is right that the task was slightly different. The first time they interpreted what the offset should be under the 89 plan, looking at a few things, and this time they said, oh, we were arbitrary. So now we'd like to resolve the same legal question looking at a few more things. So in one why, sense, why, why, as, as I understand it, which the yes, uh, you, you and I are both working at Xerox. And in year one, and we each have 500000 in our contribution account, and you leave and you take the 500000 I stay and I don't. Okay? Now, my 500000 over the next 10 years is going to grow somewhat as long as it wasn't 2007. Or you may spend it. I, I might spend it, but I leave it there, it would grow. Okay. But somewhat. Some people leave it there, they grow. So family. when figuring the floor, what Xerox does is look to see how much it grew. They look at the whole thing now, 10 years later, and they say, you're up above the floor. Goodbye, we'll give you this, not the floor. Okay. Now, you are in the same position. And you happen to come back to Xerox, and all they want to do is say, you know, we'd like to assume yours grow too. I mean, not a little anyway. And the first thing they wanted to do is to say it should have grown the same way we treat our own guys as it having grown. And the Court of Appeals says that's wrong because you left the words out. But send it back to see it's fair. So then they send the expert comes in, and the expert says, well, they didn't want to give us that way to grow it. Here's how we'll assume it grew like an insurance company, the most incredibly conservative people in the world. How, how, how they would have treated it as growing if you bought an annuity right then, and that just gives us even a lower number. And, and, and they want to say, why didn't you at least listen to that instead of coming to the fact which is very, very uh, unusual, it didn't grow at all, in which case you're eligible for the floor? Okay. So that, I think that's why they think it's either an abuse of discretion or he should have listened more to the, to the uh, expert, uh, should have done something else. I, un I understand that entirely. I'd like to say a few things. All of these points would be very important if we were designing a plan in the first place. I I'm not suggesting that the result in this case is what parties would bargain to in the first instance if they had all the information. I'm not going to defend that. Mm -hmm. The question here is Xerox left a provision out of the plan, and now we have a problem. What are we going to do? Mm -hmm. That's how we get to equity. In fact, I think it would have been appropriate if I were litigating the case at that point. I would have argued you can't have an equitable defense. You need to enforce the nominal offset, but that ship is sailed. So we go back on remand. And to, to Mr. Long's point about how it's standard to have an actuarial offset, take disclosure away for a minute. It is not standard to apply the, the time value of money to the entire defined contribution balance. I will not accept that characterization. Mm -hmm. Under the principle of duplication, we presented an alternative that used a time value of money offset, but it applied it to the relevant principle. Xerox didn't like that, so they, they advocated something else. Here's why it's relevant to your question. I'm sorry, what's the relevant principle? 
Isn't it what the lump sum was that he took out? I don't think so. This is a defined benefits plan. And, you know, as from a regulatory standpoint, as this case comes to this Court, it's a defined benefits plan. Section 9.6 of the plan talks about non-duplication. With no other information, if you, if you force me to say, well, what, let's make an argument. What are we going to think about non-duplication? We're trying to say that we're not going to give you money under this floor, as you put it, Justice Breyer, of the defined benefits plan if it duplicates your prior defined benefit payment. What my clients got was from an entirely separate plan, and it was a defined contribution plan. They're integrated. Well, they chose to take it out of that plan, right? I actually think that's not true. It's, it's not clear from the record, but my understanding is that most of my clients didn't, didn't have that option. Now, I'd like to get back to, just for a second, Justice Alito, to your question, because it goes to the core of deference. Another very important factor is, are there fact questions? And this is important, because if you're thinking about the broad principle, this comes up in ERISA all the time. I see this all the time. Even after an abuse of discretion, courts regularly say, we're going to send this back, because they're not going to be in the business of holding evidentiary hearings and looking at complicated fact questions. So that's a factor that, where you might say, you know what? They abused their discretion, but I'm sending it back. Not only was that not an issue here, the lower courts explicitly held that they waived this. They didn't want it sent back. Another important factor is whether or not it's a, a regulatory infraction. Excuse me. You're talking about the Court of Appeals sending it back to the district court, or you're talking about the district court sending it back to the administrator? I'm saying that when the Court of Appeals sent it back to the district court, the district court never even considered sending it to the administrator because there'd be no reason to do that. They didn't ask for it. This isn't one of those cases where there's — it's a medical case where you need new uh, evidentiary hearings on whether someone's sick. This goes to Justice Alito's question of, in which cases after an abuse of discretion are courts likely to defer? That's a factor where they are. Let me give you another one. If you have a, a minor procedural infraction, and this case is anything but the disclosures were wrong for five years, and contrary to Mr. Long's claim, this wasn't missing from the plan for three months. This was missing from the plan. Well, since that's a fairly stark disagreement among counsel on a factual matter, where, where in the record do you see pages, pages 29A and 30A of the petition appendix? You have to read it very carefully, and I know this stuff is boring, and I apologize. But this is the first time that the offset was reinserted. It was in 1993 in Section 1.45F that Xerox finally put the offset back. Here's the confusion. They keep referring to this 1990 amendment. The 1990 amendment, which is invalid, it didn't put an offset back. It just put in the words phantom account. It was it, — it, it created a phantom entitlement. It put in the words phantom account? It, it put in the words phantom account, but the words phantom account were already in the 89 restatement. If you look in at, at section 1.35, and it's in the joint appendix, it's page 19A of the joint appendix. This is the definition of retirement account. This is the account that actually applies to my clients. There's a phantom account here. There's always been the phantom account in the plan. They removed the offset. So this, the, the relevant thing is the offset, and it's been gone for five years. Now, to get back to this deference question, which I, I think is important because these factors matter, let's take the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit regularly defers after an abuse of discretion. The U.S. points this out. Uh, where do they point it out? Page 23 of their brief. The Miller versus United Welfare Fund case out of the Second Circuit does precisely what Xerox says the Second Circuit overruled. So unquestionably, the Second Circuit realized that it could defer, but it chose not to here. This wasn't a small procedural infraction. This wasn't you have to decide in 30 days, and Xerox took 33 days to decide. This was Xerox sending personal benefit statements 
to people for five years that said, you're going to get $2,000, you're going to get $3,000. The, the summary plan description in this case, it's on page 47A. It says the amount you receive may also be reduced if you've previously left the company and received a distribution at that time. Mr. Long gets up here, and I understand what he's saying. He says we have to disclose everything in a summary plan description. How is it going to be a summary? No. We suggest that you have to say there's going to be some appreciation. You have to do something to suggest to average plan participants that there's going to be a 20 percent interest rate, an 8.5 percent interest rate, that it's going to apply to your entire distribution. And that's what the lower court decided here. They, they were there. They saw the facts. They found that there was an abuse of discretion. And, and they said, you know what, in this rare case, and it is rare on the Second Circuit, they said in this rare case, because of this particular abuse of discretion that involves the same issue, that involves statutory disclosure violations, that involves Xerox trying to pay people $5.31 a month when they told them they were paying them $2,300 a month, we're not going to defer. And they want the extra mile. We can handle those no facts. We can handle those facts just as easily as the district court. Of course. We, we don't have to look at the witness's demeanor. That's true. I mean, just, just, just because a decision has some factual basis, every decision has some factual basis. That doesn't mean that, uh, uh, that an appellate court, including this one, can't decide the questions. I agree with you. I, it I wasn't suggesting Why to the country. keep stressing that, you know, the district court was there and saw these facts? That's fine. Oh, oh I think it, here's why I think it's — I think I was unclear. Here's why I think that's important. The law at trust law was that there's a bright-line rule. The bright-line rule was once there's an abuse of discretion, the court gets to decide, will you continue to defer? Xerox isn't coming before you and saying that the Court of Appeals here abused its discretion in choosing not to defer. They're advocating a bright-line rule that says a court must defer unless there's a finding of bad faith. And so well, my yeah, point but defer doesn't mean uphold in every circumstance, does it? No, defer means if Okay, well, then I don't think it's the proper to say they can choose not to defer. They can defer and, ch and choose to find it still an abuse of discretion. Oh, that's true, Your Honor, but that's flatly not what happened at trust law. If you look at the cases that the government cites um, on in their brief, it's pa uh, pages — 17 and 18, they cite a host of cases. If you look at the Colton case, if you look at the quote directly from the leading Bogart treatise, there are many cases like this one where the Court said, we're not going to give you a second chance. We're not just that we're going to listen to you and not, and not give you deference, and we're, we're going to listen to you and disagree. We're not going to listen to you. And that's the rule that we and the government are advocating. It was the law, a trust law, and, and, and out of fidelity to Glenn and Firestone. So just so I understand, there are two different views. One is we're going to listen to you and we may not agree with you. And the other is we're not even going to listen to you. And you're arguing for the second rule. You think the proper way to uh, approach this is saying we don't care, plan administrator, what you think. May, may I answer that? Well, sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't want to be presumptuous. I would characterize it slightly differently. I would say that under the first rule, you listen and if you think it's reasonable, you maybe consider as a factor where the line of reasonableness is, but you reject it. Right. I'm saying that was not the law. That's never been the law. The law is once there's been an abuse of discretion, the court has the right to say, we're going to decide for ourselves. We are going to decide what's reasonable. And if you characterize that as not listening they to They don't you, even need to accept a brief from the plan administrator. I don't There's think no it would ever happen, but that's how it worked at trust law. They wouldn't have to. But Thank I think you. courts are more reasonable than that. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel.
Mr. Roberts. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. When a plan administrator has abused its discretion in construing plan terms, courts are not required to defer to the plan administrator's fallback interpretation of the same terms. That rule follows from trust law, and a contrary rule would undermine ERISA's protections for plan participants. It would reduce incentives for administrators to interpret plans reasonably. It would discourage participants from challenging unreasonable benefit denials, and it would make employers less likely to draft clear plans. What if I don't think it's the same terms? If you don't think it's the same terms, uh, that would present a, a, a different question about whether deference was required, but uh, still deference would have been inappropriate here because the uh, fallback interpretation by the plan administrator uh, presented the same notice problems uh, that the uh, original phantom account interpretation uh, had provided because the summary plan description didn't provide notice that there would be an appreciated offset. But the rule that the Court of Appeals adopted uh, was that deference was not required when it was the same terms, and the Court of Appeals found that. Um, I don't think this Court needs to, uh, in resolving that, to decide whether it was the same terms uh, here. We think it, it was um, because the uh, — the uh, petitioners made two arguments in defending their initial benefits determination. One was, we can apply the post-1998 terms, and the other one was, even applying the 1989 plan, that authorizes use of the phantom account because of the non-duplication of benefits provision. And now they've come back on remand, and they're saying, well, no, we're now reading that non-duplication benefits provision differently. And that's the, that's the same uh, plan terms. What about uh, the hypothetical I asked your, your friend? Um, you know, this is how we read the provision, re- reading A. We recognize that there's, there's some ambiguity there. And if a court disagrees with it, our, our second reading is, is B. No, we, we no th- deference on we B. think there would be no deference on B if it was just a second reading of the same um, of the same uh, term. Does that Under make that sense? Logic, I mean, it, it, don't you want the ad- administrators to give you their best best understanding? You want the administrators to give you their most reasonable uh, I- interpretation, but under the logic of uh, letting them be able to put the first interpretation there, they could just put a list of uh, ten interpretations, yeah, starting can, with the can, one that's most favorable. They can take it to the extreme, but if it looks like a good-faith effort to say, you know, it, it's tough to ad- interpret and administer these plans, and they say, this is what we think it means, but we're human, maybe we made a mistake, and this is then a court might choose to defer if it thought there was no reason uh, to think uh, that there was uh, there was uh, uh, a reason to suspect that there. You're being is careful not to say bad faith. There was no bad faith here. No, they wouldn't have but, to find well, I'm, I'm bad faith. For, I'm, I'm still not sure of the standard. The standard would I'm, be. I'm, I'm the district judge, uh, and I want to defer in. In, in, in case A and not in case B. What, what's the difference? Ordinarily, if we're talking about they've put forward an interpretation, now they want to put forward a fallback interpretation. Um, generally, um, if, generally, if they have, uh, haven't put that forward before, um, we think that deference wouldn't be appropriate because they had the opportunity to address the issue, and there are, the unreasonableness of the initial interpretation suggests that they may not act reasonably on remand. And so one, one strike and you're out. No. I mean, that, that's assuming, it seems to me, it makes sense if there's bad faith. Court, I mean, you make fallback arguments. You're here and say, this is how we read this. But if you don't agree with it, this is how we read that, it. That's right. And, um, but 
but there are, uh, there are concerns here about undermining ERISA's protections for plan participants. That, Mr. Roberts, uh, I thought you said in this, in this case, and we're only dealing with this case, there was the same basic uh, problem, the same flaw in the second interpretation. Uh, and you, was, you said in both cases it wouldn't satisfy ERISA's notice requirement. That's right, because ERISA requires the summary plan description to uh, identify any circumstances that will result in an offset, uh, to describe the offset in a manner calculated to be understood by the average plan participant, and not to minimize the significance of the offset. Then I don't understand what the purpose of the remand from the, the Second Circuit to the District Court after the Second Circuit's first decision was. In other words, you're saying that they, they found that anything other than uh, a, an offset for the amount of money that was actually received by the beneficiary upon leaving Xerox would be would violate the notice requirement. Well, so that interprets the plan. There's nothing left to do then. I don't know that the that the Court of Appeals actually found that the first time around. Um, our point is um, that uh, that was the consequence of the lack of notice that was in in the summary plan description. I understand you to be saying that the the concept of any appreciation of that amount based on the time value of money is invalid because there wasn't proper notice for that. So there's nothing left to do on remand, it seems to me. I don't understand what the purpose uh, of remand was. We think in most cases um, it would have been an abuse of discretion for the district court in light of the lack of notice in the summary plan description to apply an appreciated offset. But the District Court also did consider the reasonable expectations of the plan, uh, plan participants, um, and there might have been other countervailing considerations that could have been advanced by the, the um, plan administrator, uh, perhaps about the financial solvency of the plan or, or some other uh, matters, but, but those weren't presented here. The point is that once the court, when the court remanded, the first task for the district court on remand was to look at the plan terms, because it's a benefit action, determine whether those plan terms um, addressed how to calculate the offset. But here, the court couldn't rely on the plan terms, really for two reasons. First, as the district court said, the plan said virtually nothing about how to do it. And second, um, the point that I was making before, ERISA prohibited the court from adopting an interpretation that provided for more than the uh, an offset greater than the face value. So, in principle, if, if we accept uh, your argument, if other ret- retirees who are later rehired bring a lawsuit in another court, you might have a different result because it would be up to up to that court to decide what was. What was a proper result? It, right? it, in the, That's the consequence of not deferring to the plan administrator. You, you if have the plan, if the plan terms in the in an ordinary case, if there was an abuse of discretion in interpreting the plan terms, the plan terms would still address the issue. There wouldn't be an additional violation of ERISA's notice requirement. This is a, a unique case in the sense that here you've got not just an, a, an arbitrary, a, an unreasonable interpretation of the plan terms but you've also got the problem of the lack of notice in the summary plan description, and you've also got the problem that the plan terms are really silent on this issue. They just don't say anything uh, about how to calculate the offset. It's a pretty big windfall for people. I, you're working at Xerox, and your plan was about approaching the minimum level. Let's quit and then go invest it. 
and then come back three days before you're bound to retire, and then you're going to get whatever the plan grew, and you'll also get your minimum. I don't think it's a, a windfall, Your Honor, because it depends on what the employees were promised when they were deciding whether Why would anyone back. promise them that kind of a deal? Well, be, uh, first of all, um, when you've got uh, a defined benefit plan and defined contribution plan, there's no requirement in ERISA, and uh, employers frequently uh, or at least sometimes would not offset the defined contribution uh, benefits from the defined benefit plan. And even in a floor offset arrangement where they would, an employer could provide less than the full amount. What about the other what more serious question? I mean, that is a serious question, but the more general question. What about something is it analogous to Skidmore deference? Okay. So you say, <laughs> you say, you say that you take the, the district judge here can take right. the, the, right. he takes the administrator's opinion for what it's worth. Well, <laughs> he has to listen to it. We go back to the urns. <laughs> <laughs> That's essentially that's essentially the the, the principle that we're that we're that is essentially about. the principle. The court's not required to uh, apply but he does a have to read. It. He has to read it. Review again. Read it and take it for what it's worth. Well, the, I, so, I think so, any responsible district court would 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 do that. Um, you don't think they would? You think they would do? They that? would do. Yes. That. So you disagree course. with Mr. Stris? You think that district court should listen to what the plan administrator has to say? Well, I think that in trust law, that under the principles of trust law, that Mr. Stris is correct, that the district court has um, the the court would have discretion to formulate the remedy um, and it, would direct is it, Mr. the trustee. Roberts, is it a remedy? So that's one thing. Is you can view this as the district court uh, substitute interpreter of the plan. Or another way you can look at it is to say the, the benefit determination was wrong. We reject it. Court rejects it. So now there's a remedy for that wrongful determination. So is this in what is going on in the district court an interpretation of the plan or a remedy for a wrongful determination? In a benefits action, the first question is to interpret the plan. But what you have here is a plan that is silent and a plan that where interpreting the plan to provide for a certain kind of offset, um, there is an adequate notice in the summary plan description, so there's a violation of ERISA. So in this circumstance, not ordinarily whenever there's a misinterpretation of a plan, but in the circumstances here, it is a remedial decision because the court has to fill the gap in the plan that's the result of we the silence. We interpret of the plan. gaps in, pl- in, in documents all the time. That's part of interpreting a document, figuring out what it provides for in, in a lot of situations that it does not explicitly cover. I don't know why that isn't interpreting the plan. When the analogy here um, is to uh, the trust law situation where trusts, uh, where, where courts modify the terms of a trust because the terms are illegal or there's a change of circumstances, like Thank the Cypher Doctrine. Thank you. Mr. Long, you have four minutes remaining. The remaining plan terms are not silent. Section 9.6 says that the Offset should be the accrued benefit attributable to the prior lump sum distribution, and that's an annuity payable at age 65. So there is plan language. It's, it is not completely unambiguous, but the plan is certainly not silent, and the Solicitor General, in its brief on the merits to this Court, did, retracted that suggestion that the plan was silent. Uh, on this question of the 1990 amendment and when the 
The reconstructed account methodology that the Second Circuit said was invalid got put back in uh, pages 66A and 67A of the appendix to the petition shows that that got put back in in 1990 and not later. On trust law and what trust law shows, obviously the Court will have to sort it out, but we stand with Professor Scott with his treatise, which is keyed to the Restatement Second, which was in effect when ERISA was adopted, Section 187 of his treatise, which correlates with Section 187 of the Restatement Second, we think uh, supports our approach that unless there is bad faith or the uh, trustee is acting outside the bounds of discretion, and the Court will get the trustee within the bounds of discretion, but unless there's some reason to think the trustee can't fairly and honestly exercise the discretion, the terms of the trust assign that responsibility to the trustee, and therefore the trustee should exercise that discretion. And then finally, on this question of notice and whether there was adequate notice, not of the reconstructed account methodology, but of the plain vanilla annuity, the ordinary way this is done, we would urge the Court not to accept these representations that, oh, it's just the same question if the notice for one is inadequate, the notice for the other must also be inadequate. Uh, I mean, there's actually uh, Second Circuit law, the McCarthy against Dun and Bradstreet case, that holds that a summary plan description does not have to completely explain how you do every offset and actuarial adjustment. There are so many of them. Many of them apply just to uh, relatively small groups of people, including uh, this one that we're talking about. There are but if the Court of Appeals held that this one was inadequate because it did not say that you were going to take into account the time value of money, if that's the reason it held that this one was bad, the same reason would apply to the plain vanilla. Well, well if the Court had actually held that, I mean, I would urge you not to read the Court's opinion that way. I mean, I think if it held that, I think that would be a mistake because there, there are, you know, it's just so typical that you have actuarial adjustments in pensions and, and in general. I mean, people don't expect to take out a mortgage on a house for 20 years and pay no interest or buy a bond from the Treasury for 20 years and receive no interest. So I, I think if, if it's going to be the ordinary plain vanilla way this is done, the, the PBGC way, the safe harbor way, uh, it may be sufficient, may very well be sufficient. Mr. To simply Long, would you, would you explain your position on the picture we were given of the, these people who are rehired and, and they get periodically a statement that says you're going to get 2000 some odd dollars. And then five years later they get a statement that says, no, it's only $5.18 or something like that. Right. And, the, and those statements, which are non-planned documents, said there, there may be an adjustment or there will be an adjustment for prior distributions. And in a case like Mr. Frommert's, that's the $5 case, the reason it's $5 is because his entire defined contribution benefit virtually came from I'm, that I'm large lump sum. Why, why it was $5. It's why did he get... Uh, notices that gave him the perception he was going to get over 2,000 when it was so much less? Well, because those those particular forms, which again are not planned documents and he really should show individual reliance and prejudice, didn't do the calculation. He got another document that did do the calculation, and that's when this started. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Counsel, the case is submitted.
The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.